You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, our flesh has a natural way of responding to suffering. Most of them are all bad. And I want to talk about two ways that we naturally and poorly respond to suffering because we're going to learn in our psalm maybe a better way to respond when we suffer. Uh, the psalms, this theme this month in the psalms, there's been a lot of suffering. And that is one way the psalms encourage us is that suffering isn't unique to the people of God. Or our suffering that we experience isn't unique. God's people have always suffered because we've always been seeking a homeland. So describing these two wrong ways that we naturally suffer, number one, in our suffering and in our trials, some of us, we find this functional refuge in sort of a victimhood mentality. This has happened to me, and then we justify acting out of frustration. I'm angry that this has happened to me. I'm mad, and so I'm justifying my response in this victimhood mentality. And it's not that I hate God. It's not that we hate God or we don't want to serve him and love him. But Romans 8.28 and how all things work together doesn't really seem to comfort me in these moments. Doesn't really mean much to me in my fleshly response to suffering. And then we feel guilt and shame about all that and then it keeps us from going to the Lord. That's one way. And I'm familiar with that way of suffering. A second way, maybe some of you are familiar with, We delude ourselves into this pseudo-Gnostic mindset where we seek to rise above the physical experiences of suffering and our circumstances, and, and we're functionally acting like they don't even exist. And we use spiritual disciplines, even the discipline of prayer, like we're going to make ourselves so spiritually serene on the inside that we're not even going to hurt. The, The physical experiences that we go through won't even matter because we're so at peace through this thing that we're doing. And we rest often in the act of our praying, not the one to whom we're praying. Well, if you read Psalm 61 this week, you might have thought to yourself, man, this sounds very familiar to Psalm 3, and it kind of sounds familiar to last week, Psalm 46. And you'd be absolutely correct. It does. Here David is again in trouble. He's away from the tabernacle. He's a king in exile, and he's crying out to God. Well, brothers and sisters and friends, if the Psalms have taught us much this month, I think that we can say as pilgrims on our way home, we are criers. We are criers, and God is not absent in our suffering. He is a sovereign God who suffers And he is our everything in this life. And we especially learn that he is our everything through the darkness of suffering. So in Psalm 61, we're going to discover that, number one, we are far off, but we have been brought near. And just like a theology of the cross, that's the feeling we go through just about, for me, every day. Some of you weekly, seasonally, you feel far off and you're brought near. Because the theology of the cross, we suffer. We don't feel like we want to. We don't do the things we want to. Do We do all the wrong things. And we go from this far off 
constantly clinging to the cross, remembering who God is through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So we're far off, but we've been brought near. Number two, we're going to discover that, as I've said, we're criers in this life. And here's the thing, that is not a curse. The fact that we can be criers in this life is a gift. And I want to talk about why that's a gift. And then number three, Jesus is the king forever, and that means a lot. Jesus is the king forever. So we're going to pull all of this out of our text today. And before we do that, let's read Psalm 61, and then let's just look and observe what's there. So hopefully you found Psalm 61. Real brief before I read. Uh, We're going to look at section 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to offer a meditation. Then we're going to look at section 2, verses 5 through 8. Then I'm going to offer another meditation. And then the third meditation of our time will serve as our closing. So section 1, meditation. Section 2, meditation. And then a closing meditation for us. This is the, the word of our perfect God, our righteous King. To the choir master, the stringed, with the stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call out to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows and you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. And we give thanks to God for his word. So section one, as we look to our text today, I've titled it Ears, Tears, the Rock, and Hope. This is what we find in verses 1 through 4. Ears, tears, the rock, and hope. So in verse 1, David calls out, right? He calls out for God to hear his cry. And this is the difference between this legalistic, pharisaical religion and, and true believers. I'm not praying for prayer's sake. I need to be heard. God, I need your ear to hear these prayers because my heart is faint. Think about Psalm 77 in verse 3 when the psalmist says, When I remember God, I moan. And when I meditate, my spirit faints. This is those moments where God doesn't feel like a good place, and I know that that's wrong. So I need you to hear my prayer, Lord. I need you to hear me. I'm not praying for prayer's sake. Prayer gives me nothing unless the ear of the Lord is listening. Because David in verse 2, he says, man, I'm, I'm far off. It's from the end of the earth that I call out to you, and my heart is faint. This end of the earth, he's probably describing his sense of spiritual distance. There's, there's no doubt that he's probably located away from the tabernacle. He's in exile. But this type of prayer that we're, that we're considering today is more of this, my heart is fainting. I'm moaning. I don't feel like you're close. So he's saying, 
Are you listening? Lord, hear me. Bring your ear close to me. So he feels distant. His heart is faint. Huge wave of trouble washes over. Has anybody ever experienced that? You feel completely submerged in the suffering, in the affliction, in the trial, and whatever it is that you're feeling. And it's like your heart is drowning. The darkness seems to squeeze closer and closer and closer. The, affi- uh, the affliction feels all over. And it swallows up. Like if I were to be dropped in the middle of the ocean. That's what I feel like in the midst of my trouble. And my heart is fainting, Lord. You know, in our distress, it feels like calling on a far-off friend when we reach out to God. Because all we see is pain. All we feel is the wrong things, the hurt, the anguish, the tiredness. And the Lord doesn't feel like he's a close friend. He feels far off. But by faith, we know that God is closer to us than the affliction that's around us. Yet, like David says, I feel confused. I can't find you. Lord, hear me. My heart's faint. I'm far off. Let me know that you see me. You see that that I'm struggling, that this pain is killing me. So he says what? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He asked the Lord for safety and stability and notice. There wasn't quite a response like, Lord, are you listening yet? And then he said, Lord, hear me. Lead me to the rock. He knew the Lord is listening through the pain, through the affliction that is all we can feel, all we can see. What does he ask the Lord to do? Take it away. Lead me to the rock. Lead me to somewhere safe. Lead me to a place that I can't get to on my own, in my own ability, in my own efforts. Lead me to the rock. I'm too weak, right? Unless I adopt the world's philosophy, in our case, uh, a a brother told me this, this meme that said, when, when life is real hard, gaslight yourself. Tell yourself that it's going to make you stronger, and, if, and if, it, if it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you stronger, and the, the universe is just testing you. That this is all just going to work out fine, and you're going to be stronger in the end. Just gaslight yourself. Just lie to yourself and make sure it's okay. That's not what David does. It's like nothing is okay. Lead me to the rock. Lead me to the rock. I'm too weak. I can't climb up. It's too high. It's too safe. I can't reach it. So lift me up to you. It's impossible for me to get there in my own ability. And he adds justification for this request in verse 3. I'm going to ask you this, Lord, because you have been my refuge. You have been a strong tower against the enemy. You see, David's experience with the faithfulness of God didn't help him so that he could learn to do it on his own next time. It didn't help him so he could have a fresh start. You see, God's faithfulness led David to know that the Lord is all he has and he's all he ever will have. It led him to a greater dependence, deeper cries, deeper moans. But where did he go? To his only place of safety, the Lord himself. His covenant God, Yahweh. Spurgeon says on this, vote, on this verse, I'm going to paraphrase, but I love it. He says, faith in these moments, it's like a nurse. 
It comes in and it tells us of all of the Lord's faithfulness and past experiences. Going back to the garden, right? Genesis 3.15, where the Lord came in when evil and and when the fall happened, the Lord comes in and what? Promises a savior. He he says nurse comes in, uh, a faith comes in like a nurse and points back to 2,000 years ago where your God died for you, for your sin, where he offered up his righteous life to the Lord. Faith comes in and reminds you that the Lord is faithful and that'll never change. And your circumstances don't have the final word. They do hurt, but nurse, uh, nurse faith, if we want to call it that, comes in to help us remember the Lord has always been faithful. And then verse four. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This word forever, uh, it means forever. Past death. It means eternally. Let me dwell in your presence for the rest of my life. The rest of eternity. Past the grave. See, David is actually showing here an expectation to experience the presence of God that will not be extinguished by death. We'll learn why I think that with our next section as he prays for this everlasting king. But he's asking God, let me dwell in your tent forever in this life and the next. Psalm 24, 3 says, uh, you'll remember, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Right, so David's saying, Lord, let me come into your presence forever. Well, who in the world can get into his presence and be there forever? Psalm 15 and verse 1, as as we remember, who shall sojourn in your tent? David says, let me sojourn in your tent forever. But then the the rest of those psalms says that it's got to be a perfect man, a righteous man, one who's never lifted up his soul to another God or another thing one who's never used his tongue to lie or to be deceitful or for his own gain, one that is perfectly righteous and holy as the Lord is holy, and we know that's not David. You see, David is describing being brought near under the mighty refuge and shelter of God's steadfast love. But notice what he's saying as we consider, hey, lead me to the rock. I can't get there on my own. I can't dwell in your tent on my own. I can't get to safety and refuge on my own. I need you to come down and help me. I'm weak. There's an awareness in David's mind. There's also an awareness like Psalm 17 and verse 8 says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. David knows God's got to do something. I can't do it for myself. He's got to come down and he's got to scoop me and rescue me. And all of these attitudes and and all of this knowledge that David is communicating with, why would he know this? Why would he know that there's a possibility that he could get into the tent? Because that is what this relationship with Israel and God is all about. It is based upon the Messiah who was promised from the very beginning. And through further steps and shadows and through the covenants, he came. God is revealing this one that would come and all of the Old Testament saints were looking for him. They knew that God was going to be faithful. They knew that there was a plan that his people would be saved forever. That the point of reality isn't that we have a lot of fun in this life. The point of reality is actually the next life where everything is perfect. 
where God says that he will be their God and they will be his people. They're looking for that. And David prays for that. Let it be done because I'm suffering down here. I want to be at the rock. I, I want to dwell in your tent forever. All of his prayers are according to all the things that God has ever promised Israel. And so at this moment, what I want us to do is take a break, as I've said all that, and meditate on this. We were far off, but we have been brought near. As David communicates, and my heart is faint, hear me, you know, uh, bring me near. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Right now, I feel faint. I'm not sure if your ears even listening. But he ends this section with, but let me dwell with you forever. This being far, but being brought near. And so to do that, I want us to turn to uh, Ephesians 2. We had it read for us today. I just want us to look at a few verses in detail. And as you flip there to Ephesians 2, I want to remind all of us that it is not our natural ability. It is not within our natural ability to even hope that we might be brought near to God. That's not natural to sinful man that we might hope for God to do something good for us, like bring us near to him. So why in the world would David even find himself asking for that? What all starts with like I said, Genesis 3.15, the point of reality is that it starts before time, right? God made a covenant within himself to save a people that they would enjoy his love and his glory for the rest of their days, that he would be their God, that they would be his people in, uh, in, in eternity, forever, without end. And how does that come about? How is that fulfilled? Well, to understand being, brought, uh, being far off, being brought near, we heard it read today. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3 of Ephesians 2. Well, let's just start from verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead means dead. And you, you walked. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Basically, here's the thing. Satan was your father. In verse 3, verse three you once lived in the passions of of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else in the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When did he love us? When did he love us, saints? When Satan was our father and all we knew was hatred for God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for us when we hated him. When we hated him, church. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. He called us together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. Going down to verse 12. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God. That is when the Lord's love, that is when God loved you first. When you were his enemy, when you had no hope, when, you, when your father was Satan and all you were were a son and a daughter of disobedience, God loved you and therefore made you alive with 
Christ. And now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far off, you have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. Not by becoming lovable. Not by accepting some call. Not by doing what you think you should have done in some moment. Not by fixing yourself up. Not by attending church on Christmas and Easter. Not by any of the things that we think might make God save us. It is when we had no hope and we had no ability to make a move because we were dead that God loved us. And at the right time, he sent his son to die for you because he loved you. King Jesus not only loved you enough to die, but he loved you enough to live in every way that you fail. In every way that you have failed to be holy, the Lord Jesus put on your flesh and fulfilled all of the law's requirements. And then we can say, we have been brought near. Not because I'm lovable, but because God loves me. The blood of Jesus, we have been brought near. And then in our psalm, we'll go back. This is what David hoped for, this king. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So although we've been brought near, right? David's been brought near by the covenant God of Israel and by all the promises he's ever made of this king who would come. And he's looking for that. He knows that God loves him and has given him a heart that's after his own heart. And yet here he is crying out from the pits. Have any of you ever felt far from God? You know you've been brought near. We're all impacted by the fact that God loved us when we were his enemies and when we hated him. And we're in this Christian life only because of what Christ has done. Yet, has anybody ever felt far from that God who loved us when we were his enemies? Have you ever felt guilty for your lack of affection for this God whose affection saved you or led to what saved you? Have you ever been despairing due to the, the fact that all you can conjure up sometimes are just doubt? That you think of the good things, you remember the good things, faith reminds you of all of what God has done and it doesn't seem to move the needle. And all you feel is guilt and all you feel is shame. And the last thing you want to do in that moment is ask the Lord to give you his ear because I'm ashamed of what he might know about me. I don't want him to look at me and I don't want his ear because I'm ashamed of all of this that gives me shame and guilt. And then I'm afraid to go to the Lord because I'm worried about what he's going to see in my evil heart, in my flesh. I'm worried. So not only do I know that he's my only hope because I'm afflicted and I'm downtrodden, but I don't want to go to him because I'm ashamed of what happens if he gets near. This is sort of how we think. This is kind of our experience. But it is the faithfulness and the affection and the love of our God who put on our flesh and he had every good affection about the Father that we often wish we had. And he perfectly obeyed and asked the Lord to listen to him and was never embarrassed about what the Lord might hear or what the Lord might see because he was perfect. And when the Lord leans down to listen to us, he doesn't 
see your sin. It's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. It is not present to our Father. It has been forgiven. It has been forgotten. You are the apple of his eye. There's no seeking to impress him anymore. We couldn't before. We can't now. Live in this freedom that your Father loves you, that your Father cares for you, that the Lord Jesus is all that you need. Forgiveness of your sins, shelter from the wrath of God, righteousness. It's yours in Christ Jesus. So that when we doubt, when we feel the shame, when we feel the guilt, when, when temptation and affliction is all around, he is where we run to. Lord, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. I know you're faithful. I know that at the end of this life, when I lay down in death, my eyes will wake and faith will be sight. And I will not have these feelings of, of being ashamed. Sin won't exist. I'll see my Savior on whose hands and in whose side my name has been printed. With our very own eyes, we will see this King. And shame and guilt won't be felt ever, ever again. And the Lord is calling us to live that way. That's how it will be, and that really is how it is. That is how it is. But we're covered in this flesh Although it's been buried with Christ, it still floats and it haunts us. And it reminds us of all the things we've done in our youth. It reminds us of all the things that we're ashamed of. It's, it's still telling us that we're fakes, we're hypocrites, and we're walking around one another just worried that you might find out that I really am a sinner. That I, I, I want to do so much good and, and usually I don't. And we're, and, and we're worried and we're anxious with one another. And the Lord doesn't feel that way about us. The Lord is actually working to conform us into the image of his son. He's doing that work. And that's good news. That's good news, saints. So as we continue on, understanding that our comfort is not found in what we feel, that our hearts might be faint. Our, our comfort's not found in our own righteousness. It's found in another. It's found in the faithfulness and the steadiness and the strength of our God. It's found in our Savior. And because of that, let's see where David goes on the next part of, of his prayer, of this song of lamentation that leads to thanksgiving. Section two, we see a heritage, we see a king, and we see thankfulness. So we go from ears, tears, the rock, in hope. You see that, that progression, though, to a heritage, a king, thankfulness. He says, for you, O God, you've heard my vows and you have given me, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. David is referencing commitments that he's made to the Lord, and these commitments were apparently provoked by God's greatness, which has submitted him to the Lord his God. The greatness of God has submitted him to Yahweh, and he has made these commitments. As a, as a believer, sure, probably as a king as well, that I will follow your law, that I will love you, that I, am, I will sing your praises all the days that I live. He, he's saying that your greatness have, has caused me to say these vows, and you've heard these vows. And not only have you heard them, but you have given me a heritage. This heritage 
I think could point to the fact that those who fear the Lord, they have his steadfast love, his benevolent mercy upon them. They're a part of the redemptive plan of God, and they're counted righteous, and they're washed clean by the chosen one. I think that's the heritage of those who fear the Lord. But we can say more, knowing that this is King David, and knowing that there have been promises made to him that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And so the next verse says, prolong the life of the king. So I think the heritage is more specifically referring to the covenant promises of 2 Samuel 7, specifically verse 13, that someone from the line of David will build a house for the Lord and will establish a throne forever. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And we see that even in this psalm. Look at verse 6. Prolong the life of the king. His years to endure, what? To his generation? To all generation. The one for the many. His years endure to all generations. And then verse 7. May he be enthroned forever. I mean, this is screaming 2 Samuel 7. Who will establish a throne forever? I think David's praying for himself, right? Prolong the life of the king for sure. But because the promise that God made has been given to David and his line that will find its fulfillment in Christ, he's saying prolong the king and may his years. He is talking about the one who will establish that throne forever. He's not talking about his own. He's sitting here feeling far from God, asking him to be led to the rock that he might be there forever. And then he prays for the one who will be there forever. He's saying, do what you promised. Do what you promised to do. The reason I know that I will be in your presence forever is because you said I would be. Because the king who will establish this throne, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. David knows that he's a part of God's kingdom. And when God's king comes, he's going to enjoy the blessings of that king. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. We see that even here. And to, to maybe prove the point, uh, Luke one thirty two, when the Lord Jesus is born, here's what Luke writes. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. G, uh, King uh, David is right here calling to mind this promise, this thing that the Lord will do for all eternity. So he calls to mind, not his, not his circumstance, but what the Lord has promised. Yes, he feels far away. Yes, he's lamenting. And then where does he go to? All the good that the Lord has promised to do. And so he calls the Lord to keep that promise. This is how he encourages his heart. Lord, do what you said you would do. That that descendant might come soon and reign forever so that I can be in your presence forever. You know, David insinuates that, uh, that this will result in his thalming the honor in the name of the Lord forever. In verse 8. Because the Lord will do this, and God will appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over this king. Just quickly on that verse, because I kind of breezed by it. Just go read Psalm 21 this afternoon, and that will bless your heart about the, the Lord Jesus singing this psalm as one whom 
uh, he, he is, like 1 John 1.14, we saw him, right? The word became flesh, and he was full of grace and truth, full of the glory from the Father. The steadfast love and faithfulness that will follow King Jesus is the fact that he is the personification of steadfast love and faithfulness in person to fulfill all righteousness for those who are not steadfast and who are not faithful. But David says, your faithfulness to your promises will result in my faithfulness to sing, your, to sing your praises and perform my vows all day long. There again, the Lord's faithfulness doesn't leave David to trust in himself that, hey, now I got what I need to do this thing on my own. It, it, he is planting himself. I need the Lord to be faithful so that I will be faithful. The Lord isn't asking us to do things on our own. And, and, and in, this, in this equation, his faithfulness and our faithfulness his faithfulness never lacks. His faithfulness never lacks. Ours, ours do, right? Our faithfulness lacks. Uh, is it because we don't trust in the Lord enough? We don't have enough faith? That's not even the point. The point is we're still in these bodies of death. And the fact that you fall, but you get back up and your eyes are on the Lord Jesus. Just like Peter, right? When he falls into the water. This is our experience. This is our experience this side of heaven. We're trying to keep our eyes on Jesus and we're constantly bombarded with distractions of our mind and our heart and everything else. And we, can, we fall in the water and then the Lord pulls us out, right? This is our experience here. The Lord's faithfulness will not be the problem. And guess what? For us to make it on the other side of this, to open our eyes and see Jesus with these eyes, it doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on his. Our faithfulness is a gift. Our faithfulness is a gift of the new life we've been given. It's the faithfulness that's been lived for us, and we enjoy that while we're here on earth, but soon it will be complete. Soon we will only be faithful. Soon there will be no option but to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our soul. But we're not there yet. So that kind of uh, gets us to the end of, of our psalm, and I want to meditate for us uh, our second meditation. And this is the longer one uh, of our time. We are criers in this life. We are criers in this life. Christians are not moving. You've heard this. It's been said from Pastor Justin. It's been said in Theology Nights. It's been said over and over and over. We are not moving from triumph to triumph, from religious experience to religious experience, but rather we're trusting in the Lord in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our struggles against sin. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners in this world. And we have been promised a homeland, but we are not there yet. And between here and there, we are going to face a thousand spiritual dangers. And I feel like we're going to face those thousands sometimes every day is what it can feel like. So what do we do? that that's our experience. What do we do? Well, this psalm in particular teaches us a little something that we can do when we find ourselves feeling far from God. We call out to him. We call out to him. It's, it, is, it is so simple, it's almost offensive. Just call out to him. You ever, I mean, you know when your children are frustrated and the last thing they want to do is ask for your help? That's exactly what we do. We feel far from God, and so we don't even go to Him because we feel shame and guilt and all the things that we've talked about. 
But in Christ Jesus, we have been given the name of the Lord so that we can call out to our God. The third commandment of the Ten Commandments, the third teaches us what not to do with God's name. It teaches us not to use it for wrong reasons, to curse people or to curse in general. It teaches us a little more about how that's, it teaches us a little more, but nonetheless, it teaches us what not to do with God's name. Well, this psalm teaches us what to do with God's name. Namely, to call on it. To call on his name. To call on his name according to his will. That's what we've seen in Psalm 61. Lord, lead me to the rock and be faithful to all your promises. And ultimately, David's like thankful at the end of this. Doesn't really say he feels near to God, but he remembers what will be and what, what ultimately what the Lord is going to do. And that brings him to a thankful place in the midst of feeling far off and upset and mad and afflicted and still in exile. Still in exile, he winds up being thankful because he's calling on the Lord according to his will. Now, I want to pick up on some things that we talked about last week that still shows up here regarding calling on God according to his will. You see, we don't know God's infallible decrees for all of creation, his eternal, infallible decrees. We know his revealed will. We know what he's revealed to us in these scriptures. We don't understand, nor do we have the, comp- the, the ability to even comprehend the eternal will of God as God knows it. What he's revealed to us in the scriptures is his will regarding uh, redemption, regarding love and justice and holiness and sanctification and how he uses sin for his glory, how he meant evil for good. We know that that's what he does. We don't comprehend everything that's behind that. We don't have the ability to. How he governs all things according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will. In other words, what that means is all things come to pass according to God's decree, period. Period. That's what it means that the Lord is sovereign. But he's not just up there moving the chess pieces. He uses means in this world to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. From natural disasters to the fall and to sin, like an earthquake. Did God just grab the earth and shake it? No. The, the, the plates underneath the earth's surface shifted and caused an earthquake, yet who is behind that shifting? The Lord. The same thing with the fall, right? Uh, did that just happen by surprise? No, in God's eternal decree, that was going to happen. He ordained that to happen, but did God do it? No, Adam's free choice caused the fall, yet all of that is in the decree of our good and sovereign Lord. These are the things that I'm, that I'm wanting to just present to us for, for just a second. He uses the free choices of man. He uses what's natural in this world to accomplish his ultimate purposes for all things. And so in the midst of all that, we find ourselves in situations that are horrible. People have sinned against us in ways that leave a lifetime of hurt. They have abused and sinned and things have happened to us. Diseases have happened to us in ways that we didn't ask for. They happened to us. There's also we find ourselves doing those sinful, doing those abusive, doing those tragic things in this life. That's where we find ourselves. 
and it's scary, it's agonizing. And yet none of this is a surprise to God according to his ultimate, infallible, unsearchable purpose for us and for all things. And that is a hard tension, that none of that happens outside of God's decree. So what do we do? We call out to God, who has given us his name to cry to. Lord, I'm upset because I don't understand. I'm mad that this has happened, but I trust all of your good purposes. Forgive me, for I'm a great sinner. Why do I keep doing the same thing? Lord, help. Lord, I want to move on from this hurt, but I just, I, I, I just can't help. See, understanding God's providence is kind of like reading a book from right to left. It just, we don't understand. We don't understand why. We know who's behind it all, but we just don't understand why. And yet we find ourselves in this situation. And here's the thing. When we're in these moments and we feel very hurt and confused, what helps me is to remember that ours is a God who suffers. I said this last week, but it's just worth repeating that ours is the God who suffers, who planned to die in order to save you, the King of glory, the only one worthy of all praise, the one through whom all things were made, put on our stinking flesh, lived perfectly and died for us. That's suffering. None of us have ever been God and then humble himself to the grave. In that suffering, we have everlasting life. So I don't know why this thing has happened to your life or why this set of struggles is the struggles that you have. But I do know the God who never makes mistakes, and he has given you his name that you can cry out. Cry out according to his will. Lord, help me believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I, I feel myself mistrusting you. Forgive me. Help me. Lord, sanctify me with your truth. Lord, renew my mind so that uh, I would be transformed little excursion real quick. Ecclesiastes 3. Along this idea of providence and suffering and how this tension that we feel, that it sometimes isn't comforting. It makes us almost lean to this side that God might be sadistic and evil and mean. I think that's our natural fleshly tendency is to blame the Lord because he is sovereign. But here's the thing. I hope some of this has helped you steer away from that. But in Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, he says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Now, this word eternity is really darkness or ignorance. That's, that's the word there. He's put ignorance into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Even if we use the word eternity, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet still there's a veil. He can't know what God is doing from beginning into end. 
Well, why has he done that? Why is there a veil where we can't comprehend the essence of God's will? Well, number one, we're not God. But number two, so that we can enjoy the work that he's given us to do, so that we can just do the thing that's in front of us. I don't have to know why. I don't have to know what's going on in the gears and what's in God's mind because here's what he's told me. Be joyful, do good as long as you live. This is verse 13. Everyone should eat and drink, take pleasure in all his toil because this is a gift from God. You don't have to have the weight of knowing what God is doing. You can enjoy the fact that the Lord has put you in this place and he's given you toil and good drink and good food to enjoy brothers and sisters to live life with and to know that all things really are working out for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. Eternally, everything is working out for your good. But not only that, time exists. We, we just got through, well, last month, Romans 8, 29 that you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So as you suffer, we don't know why, but we just know that like this has happened to us, God's in control, and time exists so that he would conform you to the image of Christ. He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the point of time. That's what God said he would do. So I don't know why this is happening. I don't know all of the details of why this is going on in your life or the suffering that you're in, but I do know that the Lord is conforming you into the image of his son. I do know that you seek a homeland and you will see it, not by your faithfulness, but because of the Lord's faithfulness. I know that you feel far from God, but that does not change who our God is and what he said and what he is doing. So in this way, crying out to God is not a curse. It's a gift. It is a gift that we have been given to cry out to our Father who holds eternity into his hands, who has planned all things that come to pass. Crying out to that God is a gift because he's much bigger, much holier, much wiser than we are. And our life is in his hands. Psalm 131, first two verses says, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with thoughts too great and too marvelous for me. And so we enjoy the work that's been given to us. We trust his sovereign plan. We fear the Lord. We, we enjoy our toil. Although we feel faint of heart, we feel far from God, we're confused. And between here and there, we spend our life calling out to the Lord. And that's a gift. But this is reality. And, and maybe a good picture to paint that is like when uh, you drive your kids to vacation. I remember being the kid in this scenario. And they're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? The, the thing, though, in that situation is that the kids know that mom and dad are going to get us there. It's just a matter of how quickly. There's no doubt we're going to get there. You know what I mean? We're in the back seat. Just not, we, you don't really fear that mom or dad don't know where they're going when, when you're a kid in these situations. You're just, you just know they're going to get you there and you're ready to be there. Well, the Lord has said where he's going to get you. You don't have to worry about him getting you there. It just might not be the way we think or how we think. He might not use the things that we wish he would use, etc. So what do we do? We've got his name. We call upon it. So to close our time, 
uh, I want to talk about how the Lord Jesus is the king forever. The thing that led David to thanksgiving was the new heavens and the new earth. It was King Jesus in all the things that have been promised in his work. He promised a savior, he promised a king, and he came. But before we talk about what it means that he's on the the throne forever, I want to remind us how the Lord might have prayed this psalm. How King Jesus, humbling himself, might have prayed this psalm. Just like last week, he is the river of living water. But he emptied himself and he thirsted. King Jesus, who is the living water that gives life to everyone who believes. He emptied himself and he thirsted. Not only after water, but he, as Matthew 5 says, he thirsted after righteousness. Not because he didn't have any, but because he learned obedience through suffering. He was in exile by his own people. He came to his own and his own didn't know him. His heart fainted. Remember in the garden? Lord, if there is another way, not, nonetheless, not my will, your will be done. Our Savior cried, and he was on his way back to the throne. It's an important thing to remember about this psalm, that our Savior sings this as one who humbled himself and cried and wept and called out to God as one who had a faint heart on his way back to the throne. But how did he get there? And on his names, on his hands and his side are, are written your names. Because he did all of that for you, saints. Think of the circumstances that he was in. Right? All of that. The king of glory and, and all of that. Just the little bit that I stated. Those are some horrible circumstances. For God to humble himself and die. But what was the result? resurrection and life for all who believe in him. The result was your salvation. So I bring that up to say not that, hey, your situation in this life, it may look bad, hey, but there's going to be a resurrection. It's going to go better in this life. That's not why I say that. I can't promise you it's going to go better. It may literally kill you. The disease or, or the hurt may never go away. There may never be a fix. But in the midst of the circumstances of this life, there is an eternal kingdom where that won't go, where sin won't follow you, where the hurt won't follow you, where death won't haunt you. And this hurts us because there's no hope that this is necessarily going to get better in this life. Circumstantially, it's a hard reality to accept. But again, as we close, let me remind you that ours is the God who suffers, and he works through darkness. And the light has shone on our face. That light is King Jesus. And soon that light is going to touch down here on earth. And the trumpets will blow, and behold, we will be made new. We will put on immortality, and we will see our king. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. His life was prolonged. That's why he's beside the Father right now forever. 
And this is why, as goes the king, this is why verse 2 or, or verse 4 is the fulfillment. We will dwell in his presence forever, and he under his wings will be our shelter forever. That is the result of, of the work of our king. That is our heritage. And we're on our way home, saints. We're on our way home. But as we get there, we're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. And we have one another. And these are the things that we've got to remind one another of in this life. That it may not get better, but the Lord is faithful and you can cry to him. He, I get tired of hearing my newborn child cry. And, and it's new and it's fresh. It's supposed to be an exciting experience. Here's the hope. God never tires of his children crying out to him. That is why he's given you his name. Cry out to it. He never grows weary in the monotony of our crying out for all sorts of reasons. Let me finish with this verse from Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for one man to die once, and then after that, the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, praise God, not to deal with sin, not to judge you, but to save those who eagerly await for him. As we, uh, what will keep us eagerly awaiting for him is the suffering and the darkness that we feel in this life. So cry out to the Lord. Let's cry out to him now.